I'm Chris Changan Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Wiskaigon, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This season, we're learning about how humans and the rest of nature have shaped each other here in Edmonton. And our question this episode is one of those ones that I usually run away from because it's a what should we do kind of question, but it takes us through such interesting territory about some really forward-looking experiments that can teach us a lot about the species we live with and even reinterpret why they live here. It starts, unsurprisingly, meeting friend of the podcast, Dustin Bajer, on the quad at the University of Alberta as students stream by us for their orientation week. And a big week welcome concert stage is getting set up behind us. Uh, we are at the U of A campus on what I believe is the first day of classes. And so as a former student, it sort of feels nostalgic. My background is education. And so for most of my life, the start of the year is, is like right now, beginning of September. And so I haven't been in the classroom for the last few years. I've been working on other projects. Um, but it still feels a little bit weird to not be in a class or in front of a class <laughs> after the long weekend in September. So I'm, I'm here with Dustin Bajer again. <laughs> right, not getting tired of me? <laughs> no, absolutely not tired of you. Um, so the, the, uh, the reason I have you back this month, um, after having recently had you on our Capilano Apricots episode, which was really fun, thank you, is because you uh, came to our live show talking about humans and nature, how we shape each other, and you had a really interesting question that, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, meaty in the way that I was hoping we'd get really meaty questions out of the audience. So can you explain uh, what you were curious about uh, th- this time, in this particular instance? Yeah, so I'm interested in this idea of uh, assisted migration, you know, where species have historically been located uh, may or may not be suitable for them um, at the present or in the future. And so being that our climate is shifting, do we have a responsibility or to what extent do we have a responsibility to aid some species in shifting to climates that are appropriate for them? what I think this rubs up against is ideas of what's natural and what belongs where. And now we're in a situation where, in order for some of these species to survive, we might have to introduce them to new places. You know, do we move them and protect them and save them? Or do we try to protect them in place? Uh, Is that possible? Um, If we introduce them into a new location, what are the repercussions for the, you know, sort of, quote, native species that that are there? I think climate change throws a lot of things in questions um, around traditional conservation. And so, you know, I suspect that in order to protect biodiversity, this might be one of the tools that um, we might have to adopt. There's... The question can kind of sound like bleak, like, you know, the climate is changing, like, let's all panic. But there's also something really hopeful, I think, in assisted migration in that it it's something that we could perhaps do or engage in. Um, I'm always trying to push back against this notion that as soon as humans touch the natural world, we always make it worse. Um, no question 
humans as a species are, you know, can be really disruptive. But I like to think that we also have it in us to be able to interact with nature in beneficial ways. And being that we've, you know, we're obviously having a really huge impact on the planet, you know, can we can we conceive of ourselves as I don't know keystone species capable of protecting and preserving and expanding upon biodiversity instead of a species that just always makes it worse I, I agree there's a reading of this question that could sound bleak but I think it's a it's a realistic 2019 question we can see that the world is changing around us and um, I'm not interested in this because I am interested in giving up on the fight against climate change. Um, I, I hope listeners aren't either. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting thing to chew on. And uh, so, so talking about chewing on it, um, this is kind of an unanswerable question. So I'm not really sure. <laughs> I thought the last question was unanswerable too. So you've, 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 you've done quite well. <laughs> no, no pressure. Uh, well, um, I, I, I say unanswerable because I feel like this question doesn't have one right answer right. Um, but what I want to do is talk to um, somebody who has done this work um, Scott Nielsen is a researcher here at the University of Alberta this is why we're on the quad at the University of Alberta um, uh, so he's he's done a couple projects testing out assisted migration in Alberta um, to see kind of how it goes and what we can learn from it um, so my idea is that maybe we can just um, kind of ask him about the research and then just throw a bunch of philosophy questions at him. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> That's a great way to spend a Tuesday morning or start a new school year. <laughs> yeah, start it by learning, right? <laughs> exactly. Dustin and I walked across the quad towards Scott Nielsen's building. We'll take you there in a minute. But first, a word about Taproot Edmondson. I think if you listen to this show, you know that local culture matters. Grabbing a meringue from the Duchess and walking your dog around under those big trees in Glenora is fundamentally a different thing, a more humanizing thing, than grabbing a generic donut from the gas station and eating it on your way through another suburb that looks like every other suburb everywhere. The specifics matter, is what I'm saying. Taproot Edmonton is a fantastic link to local culture here in the city. They're offering a ton of different news roundups now. You can sign up to get emails once a week with all the latest news about topics like local business, food, music, arts. There's a regional roundup now with headlines about the whole Edmonton region in case you're curious about what's going on in Beaumont. Anyone can sign up for two of these roundups for free. And if you sign up to become a member, you can get all of them, the whole spread. And you'll also be supporting this show and our sister show, Speaking Municipally. Look, we all watch stuff and read stuff and stream stuff from wherever online. I do too. But if we want someone to actually keep track of what's going on here, where we actually live, we've got to pay to make it happen. So sign up at taprootedmonton.ca. And thanks for supporting Taproot, and let's find out. Okay, we're back. So Dustin and I went up the elevator in the General Services building and knocked on Scott's door. Yes, come on in. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. Chris. Good. Chris. Hey, Scott and Dustin. Dustin. Good to see you guys. My name is Scott Nielsen. I'm a professor at the University of Alberta, and I work in conservation biology, so threatened endangered species, climate change questions, some of the some of the questions, assisted migration, other things that are a controversy right now, um, and other other issues around forest fragmentation, habitat fragmentation, 
and the interplay with other stressors like climate change and how we manage those. We came to talk to Scott about a research project he led that, well, to understand the part of Alberta that they focused on, you've got to start by looking down. Way down. The longleaf bluet is a very small plant. Um, it's maybe 10 centimeters high at highest. This is longleaf bluet right here. Oh, it has little um, white flowers. Little yeah. little white flowers. Yeah, yeah. And um, for, for instance, this is a little tiny sedge of grass next to it, which is like two or three times the height. So this thing is, you know, it's probably about like that tall. Um, and I'm laying on the ground, like with my camera on the ground, um, getting super, super low just to get a photo of the plant. That's how small it is. So. Try not to get your camera sandy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The other plant they focused on is a bit more of a show off. So the northern blazing star is is absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> so it um, uh, charismatic. You know, we, we think of charismatic megafauna, the grizzly bear and the caribou and sage grouse and the critters that get most of the conservation attention. Mm. And sometimes in the plant world, it's kind of the same thing. You know, sometimes <laughs> something that's a little a little more beautiful can garner a bit more attention and has these beautiful kind of magenta, purple, pink uh, blossoms. Unique thing about the species, um, really interesting, I think, is the flowering starts at the top of the buds. And as time goes along, the flower buds open further down on the stem. Most plants grow the flower buds, and then the first ones open, and then the, the next stem grows, the next one opens above it, and then above it, and above it. Well, the northern blazing star sends up a shoot with all the flower buds, and then the very top one opens first, and the ones below it open second, third, fourth, and fifth. I heard about Scott and this study through the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute, or ABMI. I've got some friends there, and we've worked together on a science reporting workshop before. ABMI coordinated the funding that went into an assisted migration project focused on these two plants. It was a climate change adaptation grant, and, um, you know, it was questions about being more proactive about what we can do to mitigate some of the climate change threats. And I work in both, I work, I'm a terrestrial ecologist as well, so I work on terrestrial species, uh, both wildlife and, and plants. And, um, you know, about 10 years ago, the idea around assisted migration, uh, also called assisted colonization, depending on who you ask, but, Whoa, that's um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, they're like, you know, sh should we do this in conservation? And I'd been interested in that for a while, and, and here was an opportunity to, to do an experiment, uh, a test of it to be proactive about, you know, what could we do? You know, at the single species level, can we literally pick some up and move them north or higher elevation? Some of the best habitat remaining for both of these species is uh, the, the dunes around uh, north and, and east of Edmonton, so Bruderheim area. Bruderheim has the largest populations of this longleaf bluet. And the second species, a northern blazing star, Lytris ligula stylus, the last large population is Bruderheim in Alberta, that's it. There are these rolling dunes, so it's kind of dry, sandy, sandy silt soils. It's used primarily for uh, recreation, ATVs and things like that. But having said that, you know, some people are like, oh, that's, you know, it, it can be a bit destructive in some cases. Interestingly, some of the species we study favor some disturbances. So without fire, the disturbances, actually the, the human disturbance, the anthropogenic disturbances are kind of a surrogate in some places. I mean, if it's too much, obviously it's a problem, but a little bit of disturbance, um, turns out the species we were looking at are totally favorable to that. 
they, they're not very good competitors, and so they really need kind of more open, prairie, disturbed, almost dune-like conditions. This was just after the 2008 fire when I was out there. This looks like, you know, it's like everything was annihilated. This actually benefited most of those fire-adapted, open, specialist grassland species in the Edmonton area. You're really making me rethink ATVs. Yeah, <laughs> well, they're, they're great at starting fires and uh, creating some openings and, and disturbances. So Scott explained that their team picked these plants partly because both of them would have a hard time migrating on their own. So these are the two species I thought, you know, I, I knew a fair bit about. I've been going to Bruderheim for quite a while. I just saw the value of that place. I saw the fact that Bruderheim is surrounded by 100 kilometers of canola. How in the world is this thing going to migrate north? It doesn't have a, a trail that it can walk along. No corridors, right? So, um, you know, that's the big issue I see in conservation um, with the interplay between climate change, which gets a lot of talk, and the other big issue in conservation that we've been dealing with for decades and is really the start of conservation biology is habitat fragmentation and habitat loss. When you put both of those together, you've got a serious problem, right? With climate change, you, you assume that um, some species, you know, species move. There's nothing constant in nature. The only thing constant is change. Species have always been moving. The issue is the rate of climate change today is much faster. So the question is, can they keep up with climate change, the velocity of climate change? And some species will. Um, but a lot of species that are dispersal limited, probably not. And especially those species that are dispersal limited in a landscape that's highly fragmented and converted to, in this case, agricultural um, uh, land uses, uh, canola and things like that, it doesn't have much of a chance. Can you talk more about what dispersal limited means? Well, it, it means the rate of movement per year, decade, or over longer terms. Um, dispersal is typically referred to within a population in any one year. Migration is about the long-term process of moving from one point to another. Often people think of over long-term changes in climate. So post-glaciation, you know, Alberta was covered with ice. So in one sense, everything moved. <laughs> um, and that just shows, you know, that there, there is no constant in nature. There's always is change. Some of the species we're working on, like the longleaf bluets, Ants can um, disperse them a few meters, um, maybe 10 meters a year if they're lucky kind of thing. Um, the, the northern blazing star, now it does have the, the flowers and the seeds that develop are wind dispersed, unlike the longleaf bluet, which is just a little tiny gravity seed that falls by gravity and maybe something picks it up or so on. But uh, northern blazing star, um, it's in the Asteraceae family, so it has these fluffy um, seeds, and they disperse by wind. But even there, we did some experiments on uh, wind dispersal, and yeah, you know, you can get um, you know a few dozen meters on, on good cases, and the long tail of dispersal, long distance dispersals, very difficult to know, but it you know it could be hundreds of meters per year if if it's if it's lucky. Um, but the bigger problem is even if it was a kilometer a year eventually it's gonna run up against places like the canola fields mm. that stretch for you know, 100 kilometers or more before you reach the boreal forest. And then the secondary problem with these species is I talked about they needed that dry, sandy, disturbed landscape. Imagine you bump up against the boreal forest with all these peatlands and forest. 
where are your openings? Where are your disturbed little kind of grassland openings? And um, so, you know, I'd argue that, you know, in some instances, there's these little patches of dunes north of Loch Labiche and and uh, north of Fort McMurray in the Richardson area. And um, like that Richardson area of, of um, uh, sandy habitat, uh, that massive, beautiful sandy habitat burns a lot, a lot of fires, which is the type of species we work on are very much fire adapted, but that's 500 kilometers north of the current range of the species. Richardson area north of Fort McMurray, super sandy. So it's really great habitat for this species and also turns out to be what we project the climate um, equivalent of Edmonton would be between about 2080 and 2100, so within the next century. So within a century, you know, 80 years, century, you have to move 500 kilometers roughly. And as part of our experiments, we also did the flip. We want to see, well, what's the vulnerability of Edmonton's um, kind of native species um, by moving them to what the 2080s, 2100 climate would be in Edmonton. And that's roughly about brooks. Oh, interesting. Okay, so we moved the species, not only moved the species north and say, hey, does it work? Um, but we also moved them south to say, you know, maybe these things will do okay anyway. Maybe they're more adaptive than we think and their, their climate niche is a little bit wider. And there's other reasons why it was really narrowly distributed in the Edmonton region historically. Um, but that doesn't appear to be the case. When we brought it to Brooks, um, the performance was pretty terrible, um, suggesting kind of heat stress. And, you know, sandy areas in Brooks are really, really dry. <laughs> sandy areas in Edmonton area are kind of just right. They have just enough moisture to hold species that, um, you know, aren't quite so dr extremely xeric or dry adapted. Um, they're dry adapted, but they can't be extremely dry adapted. That takes a true kind of prairie grassland um, environment. And the type of species we looked at were kind of the Goldilocks. They were just running between being too dry, too wet, between being too cold to the North Boreal and too warm to Brooks, Alberta kind of condition. And they're in this arc that is basically right at the interface of the um, Boreal and grassland or the Aspen Parkland. And then it stretches into Saskatchewan and down into Manitoba. But if you go to you know southern um, uh, Alberta, where it's very dry and, and warm in the summer, it, um, the species never occurred at all. And there's a different species of blazing star as one instance that occurred there, but um, not the species we were looking at, which is quite narrowly distributed. Before we talk too much about what you found out, I want to talk about how you actually do this. Um, Janine was the um, PhD student yeah, that worked on well, this? Well, she was a master's student, but yeah. Janine uh, Peterson was the um, graduate student, a master's uh, of science student who, um, yeah, it was her job to, to translocate them and, and, and track their performance. I saw in her acknowledgments that she thanked her parents for letting her put hundreds of seedlings in their backyard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the, you know, one of the issues as well, how do you go about the translocation? Now, I guess we're lucky with plants. Um, although they're sessile, they don't move around except through dispersal, their seeds. Um, some are a little bit more, some are easier to move around than others. And what, honestly, one of the reasons I, um, uh, Blazing Star was chosen as one of our focal species, study species, was um, it, it has a corm. It has this, this, this enlarged root that when dormant you can dig up and literally move. So kind of like um, 
tulips or something, you know, you can take bulbs and you can buy them in a store and you dry them right and you plant them and the spring will show up just fine. Well, kind of the same thing for northern blazing stars. So if you can find a mature population of northern blazing star, uh, these things can live for decades and decades. Um, and, and interestingly, the corms, if you section them, they actually have little kind of growth rings and you can kind of, it doesn't work out perfect, but roughly as an age of the of the plant itself and you know you can count 20 30 rings and some of these things so you know uh we, we basically the first step was well let's dig up when it, they're dormant in the fall and easy simple we just move them in that context the flip side is well of course we can also take the seed so how do these experiments go did these charismatic little plants make it up north we'll find out in a minute Let's Find Out is supported this month by the Common Ground Podcast. It's a five-part series exploring hate and counter-hate in Alberta, created by Irfan Chaudhry, director of the Office of Human Rights, Diversity, and Equity at McEwen University, uh, together with Iman Bukhari from the Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation in Calgary. They made this series in response to the rise in police-reported hate crimes in Alberta, and wanting to look at what we can do to improve the way that we look at each other. And uh, it looks like they're not shying away from controversial topics. Episode three, for example, is called Welcome to Canada, now fit in or f*** off, exploring the voices of anti-immigration. You can find the Common Ground podcast at mcewen.ca slash OHRD, that stands for Office of Human Rights, Diversity and Equity, or you can just search for Common Ground Podcast in the podcatcher of your choice. This episode is also brought to you by Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. It's a podcast that dives into technology and practices that are both good for the farm and good for the climate. And it sounds like this. Hi, my name's Derek Leahy. I host Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, the podcast that looks at how farmers and ranchers in Alberta can use climate solutions to improve and strengthen their agricultural operations. I know we hear a lot of bad things in the media about agriculture these days, especially agriculture's impact on the environment. And you know what? Most of the stories are probably true. But there are a lot of things farmers and ranchers can do and are doing right now, right here in Alberta, to protect ecosystems, build resilient communities, and tackle a colossal problem like climate change. These are the stories you don't hear too often, and these are the stories we like to tell. Download and listen to Rural Roots to Climate Solutions on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and learn how what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate. Be sure to search for Rural Roots to Climate Solutions wherever pods are cast. That's Rural Roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, to Climate Solutions. Or visit rr2cs.ca. And we're back. Just generally the results for these these two plants. Um, how did it go? Yeah. Well, the, um, the, the species, the Northern Blazing Star, we ended up having a, a lot more success in as far as uh, the overall experiment. One of the most interesting results was the establishment, the seed germination and establishment, the um, survival in that first year. Um, the further north we moved it, the better it did. Mm. So it outperformed the performance of its native range. Wow. So a couple things could be going on there. One, the species could be already out of disequilibrium with its current climate. In other words, it came up north. Remember, it's the most northern species. It's kind of Goldilocks. It also needs, it can't be too cold and too wet but it certainly can't be too hot and too dry. And although post-glaciation, it moved up into the Edmonton area, 
it kind of bumped up against the boreal forest, which is unsuitable habitat. Even though way further north, like up in the Richardson area, 150 kilometers north of Fort McMurray, sandy areas in the summer, it's kind of hot up there. Um, that's the area it actually did better than its native range. So, but you know, so one sense is maybe it already it could have, if it could have migrated that far north, it already could have been there, but it, it, it couldn't. Um, so it already, it points out that, you know, it's complicated, like ranges of species are moving and stuff. And just because it's at that spot now, doesn't mean it's even optimal under today's conditions. The mature plants that we moved generally performed about equally, except for if you move south towards uh, brooks and things like that, it performed worse. And the germination establishment rate in brooks was pretty much nothing. Mm-hmm. So when we put seed down there, I, it was it was either 0% or 1%. There was very, very little uh, uh, establishment right there. So it demonstrates, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> the, the climate of Edmonton in 2100 is not going to be particularly all that great for maintaining that population through regeneration uh, yeah. processes. So it's, um, now the flip side is, although we, it was a little bit easier to move around the northern blazing star, or little tiny longleaf blues of these little tiny seeds, um, we had a lot of difficulty in trying to get it established anywhere, to be honest. So it, you know, the, it, it was more difficult to have these conclusive results that do way better up north than in, in let's say, the Edmontarian or further south. Well, kind of did equally poor everywhere because it's such a, it has a, a higher habitat specificity, probably needs a longer time for germination and specific requirements. Uh, the type of planting time we did in the springtime probably wasn't optimal. And there's a number of different kind of uh, issues that happen. So it probably, you know, you'd probably have to spend a lot more time on a species like that to do it right. And it just demonstrates the variability and some are going to be easier, some are going to be harder. And that was one of the lessons we learned. Yeah. More like a, a panda that needs like very specific breeding conditions than like a cane toad. You just plop it down. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, they're, yeah, there's, you know, it's going to vary in uh, how hard it is to, to manage these species. And that's kind of like climate change. We also did a study on just looking at the, the overall changes of, um, you know, about uh, 1,400 plants in Alberta with climate change. And there's winners and losers. There's species that we expect to gain in distribution. And there's equally, there's a lot of species that are, we are suggesting to be lost in, in the range and possibly completely, but uh, certainly in overall extent area and population size. So that's, you know, that's one of my message. It's not, it's not like everything is disappearing. Um, there's going to be winners and losers. Some will gain, some will lose. And the ones that gain are the more generalist. Uh, they, they have rapid reproduction rates. They can disperse fast. Um, those, can, well, those life history traits will be beneficial to them kind of taking over. <laughs> and the longleaf bluets of the world, eh, you know, those are, the, those are the type of species not so well, right? You know, they're, they're the ones that are just going to shrink. They're just the life history traits, their dispersal, their the regeneration niche, all these things are way too narrow to adapt to extreme changes. Um, you know, there are different views in conservation, a little bit more backed off, you know, kind of the Eden wilderness viewpoint of let's not interfere. And when we when we, we do something in conservation, let's do it in a way that takes humans out of the equation. Whether it's a protected area, kick people out. Or a restoration, let's restore it to 1800 or some pre-human condition. The problem is humans have always been here. And today we've 
we've interfered with every place on the planet. And if you take that alternate view, the managed view, it says if everything is already altered on the planet anyway, even places like the Arctic and Antarctica, well, there's habitat loss from ice being lost, um, and there's pollutants and, and so on, um, even those places have been affected. So if we think there is no wilderness or Eden out there anymore, uh, that everything is altered, then to me it suggests that we might as well manage what we have and do it as best as possible. So if we're going to play God, we might as well be, get good at playing God. Quote. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's um, you know, my viewpoint is more like that, is I, I think we can be a bit more proactive and active in what we do. There are risks. Um, you know, people get afraid of, you know, exotic invasive species, and rightfully so. There are some pretty bad ones. But usually, in this instance for assisted migration, when you move a species within its same continent or biogeographical realm, it's usually not a problem. There's never really been demonstrated, to my knowledge, an issue of where a species on the same continent has moved and caused tremendous issues. It's when you break down biogeographical realms, like, you know, take something from Europe and put it in North America, put something from North America and put it in Australia, Europe, or Asia and here, they didn't evolve with the, um, with, uh, the species on those other continents and, the, and some of them kind of turn loose and create problems. That, I don't know, that's my viewpoint. Of course, there's many different viewpoints, and to me, we should at least try. And uh, the flip side is, I often call it in conservation documenting the decline. You know, we can, like, we, can, we can do a fabulous job of watching things happen, like go extinct or locally extirpated. Kind of do it all the time, but, you know, um, it'd be awfully nice if we intervened a bit to help them out in situations where the anthropogenic causes are so severe that the only way in the long, long, long term is to do something anyway. So, yeah, that's that's why we kind of did this project. <laughs> I have more. You, you answered like half of my devil's advocate questions. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but can I poke you with a couple sure. more? Asking this question and doing this research in 2019, um, you know, uh, we're in an age where um, there's a lot of xenophobia against human climate refugees like there are these billboards that have gone up across canada right the say no to mass immigration maxime bernier posters it's hard enough to persuade canadians i think right now to like care about like kiribati drowning because of something we're doing um so what would you say to someone who says like well we should just shouldn't we just put all of our efforts into helping humans move and adapt to climate change well, that's a good question. I guess uh, to me, it's it's both again. I mean, I, I of course, I'm a conservation biologist, so I think a stewardship of our environment, and um, that I believe enriches everyone, um, whether you're from Canada or not. So I think, um, you know, Canada has its own challenges for adaptation to climate change, and um, you know, changes in agriculture and um, so on. But it also, it also is going to have you know, threats and, and uh, uh, issues on our native biota. And that's what I work on. So, I, you, know, it is, you know, as far as um, immigration, you know, I, to, to me, I, it, maybe it's similar to my philosophy of moving uh, species around. Um, I, you know, I think it, enri it enriches everyone to have, you know, a more diverse population. And, and um, uh, you know, Canada is a big place and a fairly small population, if you really think about it. And uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think moving, you know, having 
things move around and people from different places and, and uh, assisting people and uh, I think is, is a good thing. Well, I had a, a, an ill-formed question about um, sort of having backups of, of sort of, I guess, like species in, in, in perhaps two different locations. So what, what comes to mind is our elm forest here in the city of Edmonton. Elm trees in their native range have largely disappeared or they're struggling. Um, you can find white walnut butternuts uh, on campus here also pretty much wiped out in their native range. Um, to what extent does assisted migration or, or having sort of separate repositories of a species protect it in the event of some kind of disaster like that? And to what extent could it be a cause of it? So as an example, moving um, European chestnuts to to North America has like decimated a keystone species on the on the entire east coast of it has yeah american chestnut was a was a was a super abundant so billions and billions and billions of trees yeah american chestnut is kind of the classic example of of risk of disease through translocation of other plants chinese chestnut into new york in the late 1800s early 1900s and by 1910 1920 by the 1930s, um, uh, before World War II, uh, six billion trees in the East Coast of the United States were wiped out from a disease. So yeah, that you know, this is to me, it's a, about that biogeographical realms. You know, we, I'm, I'm not in favor of you know. I guess that is an issue. Where do you call something native versus um, exotic or alien? And um, to me, if it's on the same continent, by from a, a biology standpoint doesn't worry me so much to move things around um you know but other species let's say plants you'd have to be pretty darn careful with other things i, I i'm not worried about competition plant to plant has rarely if ever been shown to cause direct extinction of species but the stuff that rides along with the plants like the diseases um uh certainly is so it's 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 something to be concerned about as far as you know, having um, replicates or duplication of populations in case of, you know, problems in other pla other places, the American elm example, and even the American chestnut example in southwestern Wisconsin, I think after the Civil War, a fellow brought back a number of seeds of American chestnut, and that's one of the healthiest populations of American chestnut left in, well, in the world, uh, um, because it was isolated, you know, I don't know what it is, probably five, 600 kilometers, maybe even 1,000 kilometers from its historic range. Um, so I think, you know, it, 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 it maybe those are the type of things we have to start thinking more about. Um, it is interesting how Edmonton is kind of that representative of the largest population of, of American elms and, you know, left in, in uh, at least in the cities. Um, the American elms have done poorly since the... Um, Dutch elm disease in its native habitat and in cities completely decimated uh, eastern United States and eastern Canadian cities and their their urban forests were completely wiped out. Um, so yeah, I think it, you know it's it's you know how far out how far away do you move things and is it done from the perspective of a community moving an entire community or um, as as you know mitigation for potential issues in the future as you know trying to conserve individual species or trees, um, I, I think I think all those things have to be considered. I think it's I think it depends kind of thing and um, it, it's a complicated question. Yeah. 
Um, thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thanks, Dustin. That was a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it. Dustin and I headed outside to process everything. I'm really excited about assisted migration. Um, I'm excited that there are people like Scott who are studying it. Um, I do think that it's an important tool that we have at our disposal. Um, I think there's also something really hopeful about it, right? It says that we can do something. Um, we don't have to just, I think he defines conservation as sometimes just watching things decline or watching things go extinct. Um, and I think what it says is like, we don't, we don't have to stand here sort of idly. We can interact with the natural world in beneficial ways. Um, but I also think like any tool, you know, there's, there's always questions around its best use and when it should be used. And those are important questions that I don't think are going to get answered. Um, I find it, I find the work that he's doing hopeful too. Can I tell you the saddest thing that th doing this episode made me think of though? Y yes. Seeing those pictures of those flowers, I realized like that's within an hour's drive of the city. I've never seen those before. And it really made it hit home for me that climate change is going to like bring new species to the Edmonton area, but also it's going to mean that we say goodbye forever to some things. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of heartbreaking. Um, when he was talking about taking a species that has been here for a long time and moving it south to Brooks and it doing dismally and that Brooks will, you know, our climate will be very similar to Brooks in the near future. I mean, that, that kind of made me sad. The other thing that, that I, I draw a little bit of hope from is um, cities are weird. So, you know, if we bringing it down to the, the, the city kind of level, it is, I mean, it's look around us. We've got, we've got lawn, we've got perennial plantings, we've got, you know, gardens, we've got water features. They're this weird kind of patchwork of little microclimates. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm personally interested in exploring is the role that cities could play in conservation. So um, Scott talked a little bit about gardeners and how gardeners move things around all of the time. Um, could it be possible to create little microclimates within the city of Edmonton where these plants can sort of still thrive. Maybe they won't exist in the same way in the region, but you know we can recreate little pockets of habitat um, and little you know we can create I think a really biodiverse and interesting uh, urban environment if we wanted to. Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find them on letsfindoutpodcast.com. That's where you can sign up for our newsletter. I try to drop in news about new episodes, live events, cool apps, and updates in the book club this season. 
We are reading books every month that tie into some of these big ideas about humans and nature. On Wednesday, October 30th, we're meeting up to talk about Crow Planet by Leanna Lynn Haupt. Meetup details are on our website. And that is the last book club meetup this season, because we are nearing the final episode of the series. So watch out for more news about our wrap-up live show at the end of November. By the way, if you like The Secret Life of Canada, that CBC history podcast, I'm going to be moderating a panel with the hosts Phelan Johnson and Leah Simone Bowen on October 4th. It's part of LitFest's Authorpod series here in town. And one last thing you might want to join. Uh, I'm back at CJSR, the community radio station here in town, and we're recruiting post-secondary students for a podcast boot camp right now. If you want to apply to be one of our interns this semester, go to CJSR.com. The deadline is October 7th. Thank you to Dustin Bajer and Scott Nielsen. Thanks for the research help from Diana Stralberg, Amy Nixon, Chrissy Tabakaru, Tara Narwani, Kurt Illiburn, Jacqueline Dennett, and Janine Peterson. And to Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by our own charismatic megafauna, Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>